From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Riders of Rohan! What news from the mark? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is The Riders of Rohan, where the Rohirrim take down the Urukai and Merry and Pippin meet someone they did not expect. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Debbie Downer here to start this episode on a high note. Um, I realize that every time I like helm these discussion sections, I'm always like, all right, and time to be furiously uh, depressing about everything Lord of the Rings related. Uh, so my apologies for that, but I will not stop. Um, so one of the things that I uh, really would like to talk about uh, in the context of the, the sort of Rohan plot that we're starting to get into um, is the adaptation choices and uh the interesting politics surrounding uh the the lord of the rings films and the books and i realize that's the most like kind of ridiculous way of saying what this whole podcast is generally um but what i'm really interested here is like the the presence of like a slightly strange and and deeply unnecessary trope uh, that exists in both the book and in the movies but in wildly different forms um and and that's of course like the the noble savages trope um so before we kind of get into that um one of the things that i want to like do is lay the groundwork i guess for for how um we we kind of talk about these like two different texts the 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 movies and the books and a really sort of brilliant friend of mine uh kind of was shooting the shit with me recently. Well, I say recently, a couple months ago, time doesn't matter in the pandemic, um, about like the different ways that people approach uh, the Lord of the Rings as, as a text. Um, and here, I mean, the the book uh, as written by Tolkien. Um, and, and they were like, for fans, there's kind of like these three different ways of handling it. Um, and the first way is as a history, um, which means that when you read the book, um, you're opening you're open to like various interpretations so you treat the the book as as if it were sort of real and as if like it were a a sort of primary source um that you you would come across as you're sort of doing historical study and so while you acknowledge that it's probably reflective of some reality um it's not necessarily reflective of the absolute objective truth um and so you know you you go into it with uh the the sort of ability ability to have and willingness to see multiple interpretations of that text and and i know that sounds like kind of adaptation generally but but there are sort of alternate ways of, of handling adaptation that i think are significant um so then there's of course like the the sort of literary approach to it, which is, you know, acknowledging that it is uh, a book. Um, and uh, because it is a book, it therefore has an author. Um, and because um, authors are, for the most part, human beings, um, authors will bring like different subjectivities, different opinions, different sort of beliefs to their writing. Um, and um, there, and as you make an adaptation of that book, um, there's sort of responsibility on the the, the people who uh, are adapting the material to look into what the author's original intention was and to sort of follow through with the spirit of that. 
And um, that's sort of like a contravention in some ways of uh, how I think most adaptations are done. But you will hear that approach to it um, kind of hailed by particularly book fans um, as the only way to approach Tolkien, which is to say, um, you know, you cannot adapt a, a, a Tolkien book until you completely understand what uh, J.R. Tolkien's uh, political ideology was, what his sort of religious background was, who he was as a person, um, and get yourself into the mindset of what choices would Tolkien have made himself when adapting this to a movie. Um, I have uh, a sort of high degree of contempt for that approach, but it is certainly the one that you will hear a lot of from book fans. And I'm sure we will all have so much fun hearing from those kinds of people when uh, the, the Rings of Power TV series uh, comes out in due course. Yeah, I don't have much to add, especially in the context of Lord of the Rings. Uh, but whenever talking about adaptations and trying to be in the spirit of what the author intended, I, I just refer to my man, Stanley Kubrick, and what he did with The Shining. And also, Dr. Strangelove is based on an actual kind of thriller or drama story. I forget what it's called. It's like Code Red or Code Alert, something like that. Um, and then he's like, nah, we got to make this an entire satire. And in doing so, he made two of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> so, like, I definitely get this take and it can be like in the singular instances okay that's a good way to approach it but i do think it can be very narrow and restricting overall um especially given that some of the greatest stuff i've seen has been kind of throwing the author's interpretation to the wind and just like doing whatever the adapter wanted to do yeah. um of course that also fails a fair amount and probably more often than not we might not even hear about the failures as much yeah um, but i do want to point out that We've had some great adaptations based on just chucking the source material. Um, that's all. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's totally right as well. And like, um, and, and I think um, one of the things that I think often gets lost in the sort of churn of discourse surrounding Lord of the Rings is that, um, well, may, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe this is me uh, having just a ridiculously small group of people that I tend to talk about this stuff with. Um, but like. Um, you know, there is a sort of possibility to have an adaptation that that doesn't just sort of translate the material, but heightens it. Um, and, you know, at various points in the films, these films, the Lord of the Rings films do do that to the text. Um, and, and so you're totally right to say that. Um, and this sort of it must be what the the author, uh, it, the author's intentions were uh, is uh, definitely a very limiting approach, um, but not as limiting as the far more farcical um, approach to adaptation, which is uh, the sort of literalism approach. Um, and and this is the approach that says, uh, sod what the author's intentions were, um, sod having my own sort of particular interpretation or take on the, the sort of narrative events of the story. We are going to literally put every single word or or definition of the words that are in the text onto screen um and so that's every single event that is in uh the books um is 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 translated into to film um and there is sort of no deviation no editorialization no sort of new take um on the source material and that's the the position that a lot of this even more annoying uh, Tolkien fans will take, which is that, you know, we absolutely must have the Barrow Downs in Fellowship of the Ring. We must have Tom Bombadil. We must have Gone Very Gone in Return of the King. Uh, and it must look and feel exactly as I had it in my head when I was reading the books. And, and I think that's all horseshit. Um, but anyway, so so these are the kind of three like primary ways that I think people um, think about or, or handle adaptations of, um, uh, of, you know, literary works generally, but Tolkien in particular. 
the reason I bring this up um, is because I want to, from from the out here, um, advocate for editorialization of the source material uh, and for like careful thought surrounding it. Um, and the reason I advocate for this beyond just it being good sense is because um, Tolkien source material has, um, I don't want to like sound like a, like a university, like undergraduate student being like, um, it's problematic, but you know, there's a lot of shit that's like deeply fucked up about what, what Tolkien writes. Um, and, um, and, and I think it's like important for people who adapt the, the text to really think about those things that are fucked up and think about how to not perpetuate that stupid behavior. Um, and I think the, the sort of case in which this is most evident is the issue of, of racial and moral hierarchies in Middle Earth. Um, and we've talked about this um, at times throughout this podcast, um, but but there is a, a, a sort of racial hyphen moral hierarchy uh, within Tolkien's uh, universe, um, and it is one that is sort of doubled down on uh, and emphasized repeatedly throughout all of the various stories. And um, and it goes sort of like this, you know, there's God, Eru Luvatar, up at the top. Then there are the Valar, who are these sort of demigod spirit figures. Then there are the elves who went to Valinor. So that's like predominantly the Nildarian elves. Uh, then there are the high men, the, the men of Numenor, who fought uh, with the elves against Morgoth. And um, then there are the elves who did not go to Valinor. So that's like Legolas's people, the the Sylvan elves, the, 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 the Sindar elves. Then there are the middlemen. So that would be like the Rohirrim. And then there are the men of darkness who are like the higher dream, the Dunlendings, the Easterlings. And then there are the orcs and all of the sort of foul things that uh, have spawned from either Morgoth or Sauron's tinkering. Um, and, and that racial hierarchy uh, also directly corresponds to Tolkien's uh, moral hierarchy of, of Middle-earth. Um, and and this is sort of an important thing about like the discourse, the meta discourse around uh, Lord of the Rings generally, because that hierarchy um, does play a, a, a major role in how the events are uh, of the story are discussed. Um, you have quite a few characters, particularly in the books, who who uh, in you know the case of some of them literally wander out of the forest to deliver this sort of racial, moral, uh, or scientifically and morally racist. Uh, uh, assessment of the world around them um, and then wander back and we're just sort of meant to accept it as it is. Um, and there is this sort of pervasive and I would say not totally inaccurate take that um, this hierarchy that Tolkien resent, or represents or, or presents is um, an incredibly rigid one. However, um, I was going through the letters, the published letters recently in prep for an episode and, and came across something that I thought was really interesting. And was worth bringing up on this podcast because it's going to be sort of revealing about the 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 sort of the rest of the discussions we're going to have about the Rohirrim. Um, and the bit that I came across is, is this um, in Tolkien's own words. The better and nobler sons of men are in fact the kin of those that had departed to Numenor, but remained in a simple Homeric state of patriarchal and tribal life. And so this is interesting. So we've been given this this sort of hierarchy that says that the most moral of all of the the groups of men are the men who went to Numenor, um, and that's the one that's reinforced in the Silmarillion, uh, the Unfinished Tales, and 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 the Lord of the Rings itself. Um, but in this letter, we've actually got Tolkien saying that he thinks that the men who are the most moral um, are the ones who didn't go to Numenor at all, um, and, and sort of retained this. Uh, 
and I'm going to use this word, and I, I'm not saying that I agree with the word, but it is in line with the ideology, uh, the men who remained broadly uncivilized um, and, and the sort of barbarian, moral barbarian types, or in other words, the noble savages. And I want to really get into this question of, of the noble savages trope in Lord of the Rings because in both the books and in the movies, it's deeply, deeply present and, and sort of deeply ingrained into their respective sort of narrative ideologies, but in vastly different ways. For those who don't know, and it's totally reasonable to not know this, um, the noble savage trope is kind of one of these post or semi-post-enlightenment literary and political tropes that I think speaks to kind of the the like sickness at the heart of uh, European culture, political culture, literary culture, and so on. Um, in the Enlightenment and, and sort of in the run-up, well, okay, there has long been a philosophical question about whether or not uh, human beings are inherently bad. Uh, did we kind of spring forth from, from the world uh, or from, you know, evolution or God or whatever um, as beings that are inherently evil or if left to our own devices without the sort of corruption of civilization, of technology, of, of each other, would we be inherently good? Um, and this is a question that really picks up steam around the English Civil War and, and uh, the, uh, the sort of <laughs> various issues around Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, um, and then again kicks off uh, during the 18th century in the Enlightenment with people like Voltaire, Rousseau, uh, you know, positing their own sort of answers to, to this question about whether humans are inherently good or inherently bad. Um, for the people who settled on the position that humans are inherently morally good, there grew um, this um, inclination towards justifying that scientifically. Um, and this is a sort of a product of the scientific revolution that was concurrent with the Enlightenment. Um, for, and particularly in Britain at the height of the empire, a lot of these um, men, and they were pretty uniformly men, um, began to sort of shift their interest towards arguing that uh, human beings did all not all um, descend from the same ancestor, the same common ancestor, aka they were anti-Darwinists. Um, several of, well, not several, uh, uh, a sort of quite strong trend within the, the sort of British imperial uh, intellectual culture was uh, one that said that Black, Asian, and white people didn't have the same common ancestor at all and were not just different races, but different species. Um, and one of the ways in, in which they sort of came to talk about this was to say that, um, you know, humans are created by God um, because white people don't look like black people and black people don't look like Asian people. Uh, God has therefore created three separate species um, and he has then put these separate species into different parts of the globe. So white people are in, uh, you know, Europe, uh, Asian people are in Asia, black people are everywhere else, uh, because black was a far more sort of encompassing term, uh, at the height of the empire. Um, and because those, those groups are where they are, um, God has ordained that certain groups should rise and certain groups should fall. So, so because God put white people in Europe, uh, it, the, so the theory goes, uh, white people were um, meant to destined to become this sort of pinnacle of civilization, uh, and black people weren't. Uh, and this is obviously just the fucking insane ramblings of uh, British people, I guess. Uh, but, but this is unfortunately quite a significant like cultural thing that we have to have to reckon with. Um, some of these guys used uh, this sort of polygenism, this this sort of three separate species for humanity uh, argument to argue against uh, 
slavery by saying, well, God put black people in Africa, so white people shouldn't then move black people out of Africa because that would be going against God, uh, which is the most kind of falling ass backwards into like a vaguely okay political position. Like, okay, you, you oppose slavery, but for the possibly the most fucked up reasons in human history, not sure what to make of that one. Um, but there it is. Um, and, and one of the sort of things that they, they, they did was say, well, because black people haven't um, evolved in the way that um, white people have to have these sort of massive sweeping imperial civilizations, um, that's actually representative of God's chosen path for them. And because human beings are inherently morally good, um, this is the sort of, in some ways, the ideal life for these people. Um, and this is where you get this idea of the noble savage. Uh, these people who haven't been corrupted by the sort of indignities um, and uh, like uh, effrontries of, of like bourgeois imperial civilization. Um, they live simple lives. They they sort of scratch a living out of the, the earth around them. They are in touch with uh, themselves um, and, and, you know, nature. And, and this is a very noble and good thing. And and, um, you know, they have that and we have civilization, but they have that and isn't that morally good. Um, and of course, as these things do, it becomes a, a really significant uh, literary trope. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, of course, and, and Kim is a mighty strong purveyor of this. But um, even Charles Dickens, who was um, vehemently anti-noble uh, anti savagery as a trope, um, helped to codify it by literally giving it that name and saying that, you know, uh, I, you know I'm not into this stuff, but there are people who are into this stuff. And, and this is this sort of description of this thing. Um, after the sort of... Well, around World War One, uh, the question of empire got a little tricky because uh, if you didn't know, uh, Europe sent uh, something like 10% of its men off to die in a meat grinder for the sake of an imperial dick measuring contest uh, is probably one of the worst atrocities um, of the, the well, not probably, is one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century, a deeply sick thing. Uh, unsurprisingly, people stopped wanting to talk about uh, empire as the sort of thing that was helmed by a monarchical figure and instead wanted to talk about nations. Um, so the chat around uh, noble savagery um, got slightly more elusive uh, and slightly less overt. So there's a very clear kind of split between the sort of imperial era of the noble savage uh, cultural trope um, and the noble savage cultural trope of uh, the imperial era is really overt. It is like uh, uh, depictions, fictional depictions of people in like grass skirts uh, who don't speak well, who are hunched over, who uh, live in huts, uh, mud huts, um, and ultimately do what is morally right by the, the sort of protagonist of a tale, but never sort of um, quote unquote evolve into a fully Western life. And um, after World War II, you get this noble savage trope that is actually a far more sort of nostalgic, rustic thing, looking back at the Europe that was before the Age of Empire. Um, and in this, you get like the, the sort of romantic um, idealization of, uh, of uh, uh, the classical civilizations, Greece and Rome. Um, or in the case of Tolkien, um, you get this interest in, in sort of Anglo-Saxon life. Uh, you know, what, what were we as the English like before uh, the Romans, those Fucking Romans brought the wheel and the road to us, uh, and and wasn't that a more sort of morally better uh, time? Um, and it's 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 more subtle uh, in in the post World War One era. But this division is important because it actually represents the division between the Lord of the Rings books and the Lord of the Rings films. In the Lord of the Rings books, you get this sort of old imperial noble savagery as represented by Ganbury Gan and the Druidane, who we encounter in the Return of the King book. 
In the Lord of the Rings movies, we get a very, very different type, a very modern type of noble savagery, and one that is actually very interestingly tainted by this question of Orientalism. Now, at risk of sounding like an undergraduate student who has just read Edward Said for the first time, I'll give you a very brief overview of Orientalism, which is essentially a fetishization of Eastern uh, or Far Eastern uh, culture, civilization, uh, people um, under this this idea that they are like mystical and um, sort of not fully understandable, incomprehensible, but also hypersexualized, um, sort of morally fast and loose because they are not Christian um, and uh, in particular sort of complex for the sake of complexity. Um, and Edward Said, who's, who's sort of Orientalism's key theorist, um, talks about this concept of mimicry, um, which is that, uh, you know, Europeans having to encounter uh, the the sort of high civilization, I would say, like the, the sort of well-organized civilization of the East, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, as well as the various Chinese uh, imperial dynasties, um, had to rationalize the fact that these sort of systems of governance that the Western Europeans loved so much had been in play in um, Iran, in, in the Ottoman Empire, in Turkey, uh, in, in China for thousands of years. And so... What they came up with, with was this concept of mimicry. Um, and what that says is these various civilizations mimic Western society because they know that they are actually morally inferior um, and they have these deeply complex systems of governance and, and, and culture because they are hiding the fact that at their core, they are sort of morally unsound. Um, and this is a, a sort of trope that you see consistently throughout throughout culture, really. Yeah. And, you know, for people who perhaps are not as well read on Edward Said as Emily is, because uh, she's more well read than I, uh, some of like the more popular touchstones of like the noble savage uh, trope in like popular cinema include like Dances with Wolves, Avatar somehow with the blue people is also noble savage. Uh, one I watched yesterday, in fact, that I actually kind of ended up liking more than I thought I would was The Last Samurai. Uh, which uh, uh, stars Tom Cruise. Um, and it is, uh, th it's basically the clash between um, like old Japanese tradition and the new imperial mode as Japan starts doing business with the West and America specifically and starts importing guns. And one thing I actually liked about that, and it does the noble savage stuff because um, Ken Watanabe um, is the titular last samurai um, and him and his people go down trying to fight against the new Japan, so to speak. And I like, and this is something that's kind of inherent with a lot of noble savage films is that it isn't quite divorced from some decent ideology in that it is often tr like, at least in the last samurai, um, it does highlight like American empire as being bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Western, um, what's called the Western way being very individualist, very um, extractivist um, in terms of like its relationship to other countries. And in The Last Samurai was actually posed as um, kind of a crisis of industrialization on Japan's part. Um, the fact that, you know, Tom Cruise is the main character is whatever, um, but it's also somewhat based on a loose story. But um, I think that's kind of one of the tempting things of the noble savage trope is that, especially in modern film, there tends to be like an ideologic glossing on it um, that makes it seem like, oh, they're pointing out that it's actually bad what we did to the uh, indigenous people of America or the samurai in Japan, even though it is still fully informed by the tropes that you so well laid out for us. 
And it's often also not divorced from other tropes, which you mentioned one is Orientalism. Not a trope, but um, kind of a feature of noble savage stories as are white saviors, uh, which we see in The Last Samurai and everything else I mentioned as well. Yeah, no, bang on. I like you are so right to to hit on the fact that like it is often sort of this trope that is done with the best intentions, and and lot, lots of people who end up falling in or not falling, but employing this noble savage trope, think that they are doing a good thing, um, and think that they are being progressive, uh, and 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 that really you are totally right. That really is that sort of key feature of this culturally. Um, and I, I think also sort of, um, and I need to be careful here, but I think also should inform how we talk about the trope generally, not to say like, oh, cushion white people feelings or whatever, but like there is a kernel of potential good intentions in it. Um, and so it shouldn't be sort of um, handled in the same way, like the sort of same deprogramming way that we handle like outright, aggressively violent racist tropes. You have to like kind of get to that core of it and be like, okay, well, you're trying to do something good here, but have you considered that like black people are human beings? And like, can you try and extend that logic of black people are human beings and like deserve human rights um, into uh, the narrative that that you're you're sort of crafting here? And you are you are totally right to point that out. Um, and it also makes it kind of more complex to deal with because because people come into it with, uh, quote unquote, the best intentions. They're like, well, fuck you for telling me that this isn't perfect. Like, oh, well, garbage or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah. Inter- like, good. Uh, I agree. Um, so uh, Lord of the Rings films uh, and the Noble Savage trope. Um, I want to start off with the civil- one civilization we haven't actually dealt with yet, which is, of course, Gondor. Um Gondor in the movies has this sort of Orientalist gloss to it um, in that it mimics a, a, a sort of functional civilization. It has stone buildings, it has libraries, it has paved roads and sewer systems, um, and it does have an army that seems broadly functional and has a, a sort of higher degree of technological capability than most of the other armies that we see in these films. Um, but ultimately, Gondor is weak, it is amoral, and it is rudderless. Uh, its leader is sort of weak-willed and and uh, jealous and conniving uh, and and covetous of power. Uh, and these are the things that, you know, we as a Western civilization uh, don't want and don't have in our leaders, uh, obviously. Um, so that, I think, quite clearly kind of parallels a, a lot of sort of Orientalist portrayals of the Ottoman Empire. Um, Rohan sits in a very stark contrast to Gondor um, and functions as the sort of uh, epicenter of the noble savage trope in Lord of the Rings films. Um, Rohan is portrayed as rustic, simple, um, but its rusticism and its simplicity helps and is ultimately morally good because it helps Aragorn and Gandalf and the sort of fellowship get to what they need to do faster. They don't have to deal with the checks and balances of lordship and of, and of rule um, because they are so simple and because they are sort of so so um, bolstered by their, their sort of peasant culture. Um, and of course, the war-loving culture that they have, this sort of very simple, sort of very um, a sort of anciently patriarchal uh, culture they have is treated in the films as an unimpeachable good. Um, and I do want to point out here that as sort of part of this vamping, this hyping up of, of Rohan using this noble savage trope, uh, the entire critique of uh, Rohan's uh, warrior culture is totally uh, removed from from. The, the films. Uh, there is no sort of discussion of the fact that it's violence and its emphasis on, on war above all other things actually has a deeply sort of morally um, and, and, and spiritually degrading effect on its people. So that's all taken out. Um, 
And and Rohan instead becomes this sort of morally superior and morally more important civilization than Gondor. Um, that's why it kind of plays the center piece in in both the Two Towers with Helm's Deep and also Return of the King with the uh, Arise Riders of Theoden, the, the Ride of the Rohirrim. Um, and absolutely crucially to this, um, there is this sort of sort of treatment of the Rohirrim as morally better because they are so easily swayed because they sort of breaks down and allows Aragorn and Gandalf to do as they will with their, um, with his people. Um, they are, they, the Rohirrim writ larger, therefore shown as to be the morally better ones because Denethor and Gondor doesn't break down as quickly or at all. Really Gondor is shown as the sort of more morally weak one. Um, and all of this to say, right. Um, just because there's this <laughs> emphasis on the noble savage trope, um, although markedly different in, in the books because it is a, a totally different civilization that we don't even see in the movies, just because it's there in the books doesn't mean it has to be there in the films. And actually, I would have argued that this would have been the chance to completely reevaluate the existence of this trope in, in sort of um, imperial core culture and say, you know, maybe we've grown beyond the need to talk about other human beings like this. Uh, and unfortunately, they they did not. Um, and unfortunately, they sort of go uh, ball, like balls to the walls with the, the sort of noble savage element to uh, the Rohan plotline. Um, so it is kind of necessary to talk about uh, up top here. Yeah, no, that's this is all kind of like eye opening for me. Uh, just because I had never actually viewed the kingdoms of men through this lens before. Um, but everything you say just like it's nail on the head. And I think part of that is my own prejudices and the fact that like if I see a bunch of white people discriminating against white people, I'm like, I don't have time to worry about all that. That's your problem. <laughs> um, and that's that's because of how racialized and orientalized this trope is, specifically in modern day pop culture. Um, and it's actually funny talking about this when we're coming off talking slavery in the Northmen, uh, where we talked about how people had some just absolutely deranged takes about slavery because it was white enslaving white people. Um, it's just, I'm not saying there's some kind of connection between that and this, but it is kind of just kind of or eye-opening. <laughs> I, 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 sorry, I'm just kind of at a loss because, uh, when I saw you, we're talking about no, noble savages with. Rohan? I, I didn't really know where you were going to go with this. I'm like, okay, they have straw huts and, you know, they don't have nice fancy brick walls. They just have wooden fences. Um, I just kind of viewed that as a function of the age of their kingdoms, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, like Gondor just they had more time. And as I've learned through this and just learning more about Middle Earth, um, resources and skills at certain things and Rohan kind of emerged more recently. And thus it was still like lower on the rung in terms of like civilization build if that makes sense yeah. um in terms of like there's still there'll, there'll be you know a strong brick wall at some point around edoras but that'll be like 400 years from now or something like that and i'm just making all this stuff up for the sake of argument or the sake of explaining my brain worms itself but i just want to reiterate i had none of this lens for looking at the stuff but now i don't think i can't have that lens when discussing rohan and gondor going forward yeah i mean i think this is kind of like the important bit about like these adaptation choices as well as because like it's it is presented in such like an apolitical way and it is like in no way unreasonable to think that like theoretically uh rohan could get to the point of gondor at some point in this sort of movie timeline because that's that's pretty much all the information that the movie tells you um 
Uh, and given then that like we know in the books that it is actually quite different like that that change becomes i don't want to say like insidious because i don't want to be like oh they're being malicious about this but like it does become like slightly significant in like the choices that they make there um and then i also think because because of my like bug boo about like them not really giving a, a fair shot to the really important critiques uh, of rohan that are lodged by eowyn's uh character in the films like it is kind of that interesting how much of the sort of moral nuance of Rohan gets wiped away in favor of being like, well, Rohan, simple brains, small, like small kingdom, just rubbing sticks together. Fundamentally, that means they're morally good and not like as like apt to have uh, political nuance as the Gondorim who are all like in their, you know, stone houses, shagging loads and behaving like cunts. <laughs> I wonder if my own brain worms kind of sabotaged me here because I think of Rohan as the horse girls and horse girls are generally well off affluent like white suburbanites. Um, I just did not tie them to being kind of a lower rung just because of how I view modern people who are into horses. Yeah. Um, That's a really weird take. No, no, no. That makes sense. We pick back up with the Uruk pursuit, cutting back and forth between the hobbits jailers and those that hunt them. We get Gimli and Legolas dialogue in their most distilled cinematic versions. Gimli doing some comic relief about breathing, while Legolas just says some insane sicko shit. The brothers at the very whips of their masters were behind them. The pursuit takes us into twilight, and finally in the dark of night, the exhausted Uruk pack takes a breather on the edges of Fangorn Forest. After a big leg day, it's time to hit the showers, get in the sauna, and do some carb loading ahead of what should be another day of distance training. The orcs set up camp and start hacking, gnawing, biting at the trees to compile firewood for the night. But the trees, oh, the trees are not happy. What's making that noise? It's the trees. What? Do you remember the old forest on the borders of Buckland? Folk used to say there was something in the water that made the trees grow tall and come alive. Alive. Trees that could whisper, talk to each other, even move. For those keeping score at home, these are some of Dom Monaghan's first lines of the film, and now every surviving Fellowship member is on the board. The gash above Mary's head still looks gnarly, but he retains all of his canniness. We get perhaps our best look at quote-unquote orc culture yet, or at least the conflicts within their factions. The orc Mauhar is all about that aforementioned carb loading, but unfortunately Maggoty Bread is high in gluten and he's trying to monitor his intake. Snaga, the blue-skinned pointy-eared orc, is wondering why there isn't any protein on the menu tonight. 
My man is really craving a non-veg supper, and his eyes turn to Merry and Pippin, who have yet to surpass their fresh-by date. Ugluk, had Uruk, emphasizes that they are not for eating. Saruman wants them unspoiled, remember? Another orc, Grishnak, asks about their legs. Hobbits mostly just sit around and smoke weed and tweet all day. They don't need their legs. Oh, wait, that, that's, a, that's me. We'll come back to Grishnak a bit later as well. The orcs fight. Snaga goes in for just a mouthful. And for his insolence, Ugluk removes his head, leading to, in my opinion, the greatest lines ever uttered in the medium of cinema. Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. I've made that line my shtick for about five years now. For those of you who luckily don't follow me on Twitter, you wouldn't know that. Anyway, Mary, whose head is always in the game, chooses this moment to skedaddle, and the hobbits crawl away from the ruckus that is orc cannibalization. I wonder who the Hannibal Lecter of the orc race is. The mouth of Sauron? Anyway. Mary and Pippin don't get far. Their arms are still bound, and Grishnak catches up to them. Scream for help, he tells the halflings, no one is coming to save you, which, if you know movies, means someone is coming to save them. A spear in Grishnak's back heralds the arrival of Eomer's Eored, and a full-on butchery of the orcs ensues. Meat sure is back on the menu, boys. <laughs> in the heightened clamor of battle, Merry and Pippin continue their flight, but Pippin finds himself under a horseman, and the hoofs come stomping down on the camera as we cut to Legolas and company the next morning. A red sun rises. Blood has been spilled this night. The three continue their now Quihotian pursuit of Merry and Pippin until some off-screen brain makes them seek cover. Behind some rocks, the company watches as a giant cavalry of Rohan broaches the horizon. Aragorn reveals himself, asking them what's trending on Twitter right now. And in one of my favorite shots, Eomer directs his men to encircle the three hunters, their spears now bent for the fellowship's necks. What business? There's an elf, a man, and a dwarf having the Ritter mark. Speak quickly. Give me your name, Horsemaster, and I shall give you mine. I would cut off your head, dwarf, if it stood but a little higher from the ground. You would die before your stroke fell. Pretty chilly introductions all around, eh? You can feel the mistrust oozing from every corner of Rohan right now. Aragorn is able to defuse the situation, making the proper introductions and saying that they are friends of Theoden. Take note of Eomer shooting a quick look when Aragorn says he's son of Arathorn. Eomer immediately knows Aragorn is a guy, trademark. Eomer chills out for a bit now, removes his helmet, and gives them the rundown of all that is happening in the land of horses. The king's mind stinks, no longer recognizing friend from foe, and all the while the white wizard slinks about the land. Aragorn eventually broaches the issue at hand. They are looking for their bros, a couple of short kings, but Eomer has only despair for them. They slaughtered the Urukai last night, leaving none alive, regardless of size. Without much hope to give, he offers them horses and the location of their Uruk bonfire. Eomer departs north, and the hunters are left to suss out all that happened. We cut to the fellowship riding up to the smoking pile of corpses, landmarked with an impaled head-on spear. Did I mention that back in 2002, we were flagging these films as excessively violent for PG-13 fare? <laughs> 
God, we must have sounded like the people who are freaking out about Doctor Strange 2 right now. <laughs> the threesomes the threesome start working through the carnage, and Gimli picks through the ashes, finding one of the belts of Lothlorien in the mess. Seemingly a harbinger of the worst fate for Merry and Pippin. They failed them, Gimli says with tears in his eyes. Aragorn, in all his frustration, kicks an orc helmet and falls to his knees, extremely upset that he just broke his toe, or that the hobbits are dead, probably a bit of both. But as Aragorn hangs his head, he makes out a hobbitized shape in the grass. A hobbit lay here, he thinks, and another here. And with that, we kick off one of my favorite sequences in the film. We're back to the night before, right as the horse was about to make paste of Pippin, but we see our favorite fool roll out of the way in the nick of time. As the Uruks and Rohirrim fight on in the background, Pippin finds a fallen blade and cuts his bonds, and we flip back to Aragorn, relaying, relaying that info to the audience, but more importantly, you can see a jolt of hope running through the hunters. Some fun camera work and Vigo narration tells us the rest of the tale. Once unbound, the hobbits were able to flee the battle, but even then, Grishnak gave pursuit. He was able to grab onto one of their belts, which accounts for the one in the bonfire. But the hobbits push off and make for the woods. Tracks lead away from the battle. Into Fangorn Forest. Fangorn. What madness drove me there? No more cutting back and forth, we're just with Merry and Pippin as they run deeper into the woods, Grishnak still on their heels. Not knowing what else to do, they climb the trees, but the orc catches up and pulls Merry down, ready to cut a maggot hole in his belly. Fortunately for the hobbits, a new contender has entered the arena. Or perhaps the hobbits entered his arena, as the tree Pippin was up suddenly comes alive, Billy Boyd double-taking as he realizes the tree has eyes. He loses his grip, but the tree catches him mid-fall and stomps Grishnak into a fine goo before scooping up Mary into his other arm. It's talking, Mary. The tree is talking. Tree? I am no tree. I am an ant. Tree herder? A shepherd of the forest? Don't talk to it, Mary. Don't encourage it. Treebeard, some call me. Gonna be honest, I love, love, love movie Treebeard, so I apologize if I end up dumping all of his lines into upcoming episodes. Treebeard is not sure what to make of these pint-sized pint drinkers. He's been around the block quite a bit, but has never heard of hobbits before. Sounds like some bullshit orcs would pull. <laughs> Mary and Pippin adamantly make their case, but Treebeard has already decided he's just going to kick this one up to upper management, which is where we'll leave off for today. <laughs> the White Wizard will know. White Wizard. Sorry. <laughs> We begin today talking about the Urukai camp along the outskirts of Fangorn and our first little chit-chat with Merry and Pippin. As always, it warms my heart that the very first thing Pippin does is inch over to his bestie and check up on him, just like he did back in our Three Hunters episode. This time, though, Merry is conscious and immediately pops a joke about wishing they hadn't left the Shire. Not a joke for us, the audience, really, but for Pippin, who flashes a smile. 
It's very in line for Mary to keep his cheer when all is grim, and Pippin knows Mary has his wits about him, his pal acting like he'd expect and want his pal to act. Even with the gash on his head, Mary has no problem getting his head back in the game. As soon as the trees start groaning, Mary is ready with answers about the old forest and how, how its trees can move. Next week, we will be dropping our Fellowship Book Scene episode that you unlocked, where we will talk all about the old forest. And this scene serves in setting up Treebeard and his angst, which I love giving thousand-year-old trees the emotional labels of a teenager. We literally see the orcs come with fire and come with axes, gnawing, biting, breaking, hacking, burning, as he'll later describe. Of course, we've already seen all this in the despoiling of Isengard, but just really hammering it home here, especially to facilitate the extended edition scenes with the trees of Fangorn. Yeah, and I also think this is kind of an interesting moment because uh, that brilliant line, the coming with fire and coming with axes, as a pretty sure you point out in the uh, book-only episode that's about to drop, um, that's actually a Tom Bombadil line in the books. Um, and... I don't bring this up to like bitch about like the exclusion of Tom or whatever, but I think it's interesting um, the different ways that uh, this story sort of approaches the the whole concept of exposition generally. Um, in the books, you get this whole sort of sense of destruction of the forests and that, that introduction of that theme very, very early. And you get it quite seriously from, from the old forest. Um, and in the films, you have to wait until you're quite literally halfway through uh the the series as a whole before you get that introduction of the the sort of destruction of of nature um in as clear cut a way um for our protagonists uh not in the sort of omniscient way that we we see it at, at isengard um and, and i just think it's interesting there that they they've sort of lifted that tom line and given it to uh to treebeard here because it's that sort of uh willingness to to shake up the expositionary characters yeah, and uh, I think in the Tom Bombadil context, we also talk about how the hobbits themselves cut down big swaths of the old forest when they were encroaching on the hedge. Uh, so I think they might have just wanted to simplify the morality a little bit here huh. and not make the hobbits in the films like be you know choppers of trees. Yeah, um, especially as they're trying to go for salt of the earth aesthetic with them. Yep. Yeah, and it's like this whole again, uh, and I say this only with like slight bitterness uh, to my voice here, but like the this sort of flattening of the morality in, in these films where the the characters that are good, the species, races, whatever that are good are wholly good, uh, and the species, races, whatever characters that are bad are wholly bad, and there's not really that sort of uh, introduced like moral nuance. The scene then gives way to the orc politics and restauranteering of vegetarian options, <laughs> which we discussed back in our Three Hunters episode discussion. Ultimately, everyone here is a corpse bound for a pile before the night is out, and while the film kind of glides over the specifics, the gist is gotten. It sucks to be an orc, the hobbits have something of value, everybody's just hungry. I do want to call out one of the orcs here, Grishnok, as he has the most prominent role of the orcs. Played by Stephen Eyre, he's the mortar orc who says the hobbits don't need their legs, and the one constantly haranguing Merry and Pippin until Treebeard swats him like a fly. In this film, he just seems to be hungry for hobbit leg, which, yum? I feel like we need a horn for, the politics are flattened or altogether removed refrain, we constantly say, but Grishnok being a mortar orc is key to how this scene plays out in the books. He may have participated in the torture of Gollum at Barad-dûr and thus has some idea of the ring. In the books, the hobbits here repeatedly make Gollum sounds to convince him that they have the ring. 
Right. Insanely funny bit about this. Um, so Mary and Pippin uh, have never met Gollum, have never seen Gollum, have never heard Gollum, but make such convincing Gollum noises that an orc who has probably actually been in the presence of Gollum is like, oh yeah, that's Gollum. Which means that Bilbo was definitely spending 60 odd years doing an absolutely banging Gollum impression. And that is just a delightful thought. Obviously, the orc politics and factions are flattened, but so too is the relationship between Saruman and Sauron that undergirds these scenes. The former mostly plays as a higher general for the latter, as opposed to them possibly being at cross-purposes. Yeah, so a lot of this kind of chat um, has started to pick up in light of the Rings of Power, or people are sort of asking more questions about the Rings of Power and, and the various, like, uh, ooh, spooky characters in Lord of the Rings. Um, I just do want to point out that Saruman does try to craft a ring of his own, a ring of power of his own, um, and there's this sort of far more explicit... Um, subtext and i realize that's a bit redundant but whatever more, far more explicit subtext in uh the book that that saruman is not just a thrall of Sa sauron uh he's trying to sort of become become him uh to fully usurp him um and and so the fact of like the tension between the mordor orcs uh and and the isengard orcs isn't just oh the orcs are always belligerent they're always just gonna be assholes to one another like no it is proper turf warfare shit yeah, there's an inherent tension between the Isengard Urukai who are doing Saruman's questline, no questions asked, and the Mortar Orcs who are a bit curious at this ungodly pace, remembering that the Mortar Orcs struggle to travel in sunlight, and why the hobbits haven't been tortured and eaten yet, the Mortar way, presumably. In the books, after Merry and Pippin do their Gollum routine, Grishnok tries to steal off with the Orcs to strip-search them before the Rohirrim arrive. The, film, the films obviously go for the more tense, action-y route, and I won't pretend that I'm mad about that. There's a lot more details in the book, naturally. How Pippin had freed his arms earlier, um, which gave Aragorn a sign that they were um, on their tail, which kind of gets done well enough with the leaves of Lorien falling idly, or I totally butchered that line, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Next, I want to talk about Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. And I just love this, this quote. I can't really tell you why other than it makes me smile. <laughs> and it has become a popular meme, or at least was, with people being like, wait, do orcs have restaurants? Which is kind of cute, but then got played out. But so does any discourse when you are terminally online. Oh, my God. It's so annoying because it's been revived as well. Um, and I guess there's like a online Reddit revival, uh, which in itself is uh, just a horror movie uh, levels of ridiculous. But um, all these people who are like super angrily, bitterly like, well, this is a ridiculous addition uh, to to the movies and totally not in the spirit of uh, Tolkien and the Legendarium, because how would the orcs have had access to to menus and restaurants? And like, listen up, bitch, like there is no inherent connection between a menu and a restaurant and like the song dynasty in china which kicked off in like the 10th century ad had menus that look broadly like modern restaurant menus and the story is in translation so maybe the fucking orc was like oh looks like meat's back on the list of item and items available with today's rations and they just translated it quote unquote translated it to sound nicer like oh my god pedants go die yeah, I do think a little bit is just people having fun with it. I'm not sure if they're honestly 
considering <laughs> um, the restauranting uh, histories of the orcs, though you are far deeper into the Lord of the Rings fandom, so I don't doubt that they're there. Um, my analogy is um, I go fairly insane whenever people have like the Batman should donate all his money to charity take. Um, just And I know that for the most part, it's like someone just read it or thought about it for the first time and they're popping off. Well, isn't this funny? But I'm like, no, I have thought about this for 30 years of my life and you are wrong. Stop it. So I absolutely get the sentiment to that. By the way, Bruce Wayne donates a lot of money to charity. And every time the supervillains wreck Gotham, he pretty much single-handedly pays for that. I just want you all to know that it's important to me. This podcast endorses woke billionaires. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many of them. <laughs> Elon Musk, buy us out. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I like money. I would take that. Uh, my <laughs> principles are not that unassailable. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, and then last thing here, I do think it is pretty gnarly how we see the entrails of the beheaded Snaga just go flying as the orcs or the Uruks do a cannibalism. I guess the orcs jumped in as well. Yeah. Um, I like the name Snaga because it's a it's a, a name taken from the book, like to refer to sort of the orc underlings. Um, there's you know not not really anything clever in here, but it is cool uh, how they kind of took the various names terms in the books to use for their own purposes, and this is a good example of that. So then the riders attack. And the first time through, you may be like, who is attacking? Because both of the darkness of night and suddenness of it. But the movie also doesn't hide the fact that it's Rohan. It's clearly Rohan people on Rohan horses in Rohan armor. And of course, we are in Rohan country. (laughs) Still, I really love how clear the action is shot here, even if it's for a few seconds. There's this great shot of a mounted archer twisting his back to shoot an arrow behind him as his horse moves left to right across screen. Just great horse stunt work and choreography all around in this film. Yeah, and uh, I'm really glad actually that you flagged that bit because that's um, a really interesting, well, maybe incidental or maybe purposeful reference to how archers are portrayed in a lot of classical imagery, um, and that that sort of like image of the sort of dexterity of cavalry archers uh, turning one way while their horses is going another is something that you see a lot in classical art, um, and I do quite like that they pick that up either because they're making reference to classical art or because like things that look banging universally look banging. <laughs> And I don't know if the hooves coming down on Pippin are supposed to be a quote-unquote fake-out death, something we see a lot of going forward, especially in Return of the King. I never read it as such, because when we cut to the upshot of the horse, the horse's feet clearly lands flat on the camera before cutting to Legless the next morning. I knew it was a quote-unquote to-be-continued kind of thing. Oh yeah, this shot has such a great like uh, headless horseman vibes. Um, I don't think I've actually seen a full head like version of what is it? It's like a bog crane, yeah, headless horseman, whatever. Sleepy, Sleepy hollow, hollow and stuff one. like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I haven't seen any of the the various adaptations of it, but <laughs> in the mid two thousands, there was this Australian TV show called The Saddle Club, um, and they used to syndicate it on PBS. Uh, so I spent lots of time watching it, and they did an absolutely horrifying episode, Halloween episode. Episode, uh, based on the myth of the legend of the headless horseman and um, and it's it genuinely scared me so badly i could not be in a stable like a horse stable at all by myself 
for years. And I'm like, how uh, I'm like 24 years old now. And I still, when I'm in a stable, kind of get the heebie jeebies because there's this one shot of the headless horseman on his horse coming down the center aisle of that stable. And it looks exactly like this bit in two, in the two towers. And it genuinely gets my heart like pumping, like I'm in a horror movie. So that's my little uh, trauma dump there. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Um, I am not familiar with this adaptation. I did see the movie that came out around 20 years ago, starring Christina Ricci and someone whose name I don't want to utter on this podcast. Oh. And then, um, there was a Fox show, uh, called sleepy hollow, oh, yeah. uh, that came out a decade ago that I, I watched the first two seasons and especially the first season. I, I kind of loved, um, it involves some time travel nonsense where um, the lead character uh, who's played by Tom Meissen, I forgot his character name, but essentially he's from the quote unquote sleepy hollow times of like the pre-revolutionary period. And he is brought forward into modern day. And then it just kind of becomes like a monster of the week story. Um, and it borrows from stuff like the Salem witch trials and all that. Um, I found it very entertaining. It was pretty cool, but then it kind of tanked in the second season. And then I just never kept up with it. But if you're looking for something just kind of batshit, but fun, uh, Sleepy Hollow, you could you could do worse. That's the, the TV show. John was, Noble one, right? Uh, yes. Yes, it very much is. So there is some Lord of the Rings uh, crossover there, too. There you go. Woohoo. Thank you, thank you for that. You tied you tied it all back together. <laughs> now we'll move on to when the hunters and the Rohirrim about to meet. And just out of curiosity, does anyone else think blood has been spilt this night? Whenever a red sun rises? <laughs> well, no, because I never see the sunrise. <laughs> However, someone <laughs> did an absolutely toxic brain poisoning tweet on Twitter that was like uh, the screenshot of Legolas being like a, a red sun rises, uh, and the caption was like me when I start my period, and that has ruined my brain because I'm also only ever capable of thinking that exact same thing when I start my period, and there's like something like <laughs> deeply like capital D G gender about thinking of that Legolas line. When you're like panicking for like tampons or pads or whatever. So uh, cheers, hats off to whoever that was on Twitter that ruined my brain. Okay. Uh, Legolas feminist king. <laughs> or are we willing to go there? <laughs> yes. I, I'm afraid to literally say any other comments about what you just said. <laughs> so we will leave it there. <laughs> anyway, our fellowship continues their hunt until the sound of horses beckon them into hiding. A quick book note here, the elvish cloaks received in Lothlorien are actually part of the stealth here, giving them a good camo index in Metal Gear parlance. <laughs> but here they just hide behind some rocks because I think specifically they are holding on to the cloak thing for the scene in the Black Gate coming up. Yeah, I'm going to call this Chekhov's gun, and I know it's not Chekhov's gun, uh, but it does have that kind of Chekhov's gun vibe, um, although they don't really make much of the giving of the cloaks. But anyways, um, I think this movie like sometimes has a habit of like showing things just for the kind of sake of showing things. Um, and by this movie, I literally just mean Two Towers uh, and Return of the King, actually. Um, but this is a good kind of moment where they show that like moderation and self-censorship, I think, to quite good effect. I love how they use the geography or topography to allow the horsemen to arrive over the horizon, spears poking out behind the hills before the horsemen come into plain view. Great foley work too, we can really feel the thundering of hooves in Eomer's Eorid, which at this point I would like Emily to define Eorid for everyone. Yes, so it literally means uh, cavalry. Um, and then the sort of uh, umbrella term for that is the Eohera, which is the full muster of all of the Eoreds. Um, and Eohera is just 
horse, literally horse army. Um, and uh, there are sort of like other various kind of AO, uh, well, AO means horse, the, the, the prefix means horse, uh, a whole bunch of sort of ways of organizing the the Rohir sort of cavalry, uh, Rohir military that involve those AO terms. But the only ones you really need to know are AO red uh, and occasionally AO hair, I guess. Yeah, and I'll use this as a chance to apologize up front uh, because I'm very movie-focused and I hate to use the same word over and over again. I like to be loquacious if I can. Um, I may use Rohirrim when I mean Aored. Um, I just always basically mean dudes on horses. Yep, that Tolkien did the same thing. So yeah, that is totally normal, totally standard. Yeah, I think it's the ending of this movie because when uh, Gandalf and Aomer charge the deep, you know... Uh, Aomer says Rohirrim, um, so I didn't know exactly who he was commanding because technically Rohirrim is just kind of everyone <laughs> yeah. of Rohan, uh, but he was specifically speaking to his group of horse cavalry units, whatever those are. That was uh, Aomer's not just the men, but the women and the children too moment. <laughs> oh, Anakin. Oh, God. Uh, Aomer Skywalker. That's what I wanted to spit out. There's something there. Both in the second movies of their respective trilogies as well. Yeah. The Rohirrim encircle the fellowship with rotating shots as the horses circle around creates a dizzying sensation as they surround our trio. And again, horse choreography. There's a certain rush here, a feeling of a wave sweeping over Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli that I feel is similar to the charge at Helm's Deep and the washing of Pelennor Fields uh, build on to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a damn thing about choreography generally, but especially not horse choreography. Um, but I do feel like it is kind of masterfully done in The Two Towers. Um, and when we get to it, I will do some slight griping about the horse choreography in Return of the King. But I think like this is kind of their like uh, apex uh, height of amazing sort of horse choreo, horseo, course, I don't know, whatever, sorry, uh, having a moment there. Um, but I also now feel obligated because we've chatted about the horse girls so much to mention that like 90% of the extras in this scene are uh, women, uh, just women in wigs, which is like a very funny way of saying that because obviously, well, whatever, uh, women in wigs uh, and kitted out in the like soldier costume. And it's because there were so few in New Zealand and in Australia, so few men who like rode horses for fun um, that they couldn't source enough extras and they had to go to the horse girl caucus. So uh, up the horse girls. We love our horse girls. <laughs> Obviously, the best way to be greeted to a party is to have a bunch of spears pointed directly into your eyeballs. <laughs> As we've beaten down several times, film adaptations will often increase the tension and abrasiveness of characters to heighten conflict, and that applies here as well. I do think it's pretty effective, as we've already seen Rohan in shambles broadly, and with Aomer specifically, he's just exiled, so he might both be pissed and mistrusting. And it's also possible that his blood may still just be up from massacring a bunch of orcs the previous night. Yeah. I mean, I think this rocks. He's such like a fussy little bitch. Um, and it's also like, it's not too different to the level of tension in the actual scene and in, in the books. Like, I think this is probably the scene with the closest adaptation in terms of like line dialogue in the books to dialogue in the films. Um and his kind of being a grumpy belligerent uh, wee prick is <laughs> pretty consistent throughout. So I, I think it's fun. It's a it's a good, fun scene. Aelmer starts straight off with the questions, as it would probably seem odd to find kindreds of three separate folk venturing together in Rohan. 
During this exchange, I love Legless coming to Gimli's aid, and ditto Vigo kindly putting his arm on Gimli when Eomer challenges him. There's a little less... Um, sorry, let me make sure I know what I'm saying here. I think... Um, oh, Jesus, what was I going for here? Okay, I'm just going <laughs> to take this all out. <laughs> The one big departure from what is in the book versus here is that Gimli and Eomer don't quite see eye to eye on how wonderful Galadriel is. I'm going to go ahead and call that a little bit of heightism because surely they don't see eye to eye on anything. Uh, nevertheless, um, it is a really funny bit in the book when they are arguing about whether Galadriel or Arwen is the hottest uh, and must be mortifying for Aragorn, who is like, yep, that's my wife and my wife's grandmother. Love this lad's trip. Yeah, and I was about to say, it very clearly is heightism because Eomer literally says he would cut off Gimli's head <laughs> if it was just a bit a bit higher from the ground. So I think that's expertly flagged, expertly flagged. <laughs> um, I, I also feel like this is the point at which I should mention again that Eomer is meant to be like six and a half foot tall. So this is just like horrifying for Gimli, who is probably like three <laughs> foot something and not having a good day. <laughs> Um, the one other thing that I think is dead funny in this scene is when Carl Urban is dismounting Aomer, is dismounting his horse, he drops his sword <laughs> out of the scabbard and you can just see it in, and it goes so slowly as well, which really ups the comedic value because he, he gets off his horse and in the background, you can just see that fucking sword slowly sliding out to the ground. Oh, it's awesome. It's so funny that they kept it in. Oh, I am so excited to watch this again because I've never noticed this before and it's absolutely going to just break the scene for me because <laughs> um, I'm going to see it every time. It's like that one stormtrooper who hits his head in A New Hope um, trying to come get 3PO and R2. It's just like you can't unsee it once you know it's there. Well, that's like as well, like Aomer's like intimidation check must absolutely fail because like he's the guy who's like trying to jump off his horse all like tough, like and drops his sword. Like nobody's going to listen to this fucker. Uh, it reminds me of Lionel Hutz in The Simpsons. Like he's got his, you know, lawyerly facade and he taps his briefcase and then it pops open and all that's in there is a eaten apple core and one piece of paper. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> we'll move on to the pile, as I like to call it. When the fellowship approaches, they are greeted by a head on a spike. And I hate to keep acting like the violence in these movies was world-shattering, especially given the discourse around Doctor Strange 2 now, but it really was. You did not see a lot of decapitations and severed heads in PG-13 fare in 2002. That sort of violence was generally reserved for R-rated films, um, even though I do want to point out that this impalement is literally straight from Tolkien's book. Between the smoke, burnt ruins, and the dark grays and browns that were the living Urukai, the pile is just one giant charred mess of flesh and rot. As Gim Gimli combs through it, it's almost visceral, real weight to this mound of death that becomes the emotional weight of them thinking the hobbits are dead, clearly reflected in Gimli's sadness when he finds one of their belts. Legolas looks down and says a prayer which Emily grabbed for us, and I'm not even going to pretend I know how to say these words. <laughs> so it's Hiro Hien Heath Abvanath, which is like the neo for May They Find Peace in Death. What comes next is probably known to ev everyone. Aragorn kicking an orc helm and falling down to his knees in fury and sorrow. Of course, Vigo broke his toe, and his scream of agony is very, very sincere in the moment. In 2022, not only is this trivia a common known fact, 
But the fact that it is a commonly known fact is a meme unto itself. Peruse Lord of the Rings TikTok at all, and you will find dozens of posts about people eagerly waiting to point out to their partner uh, that Vigo broke his toe while watching this movie. <laughs> and that's our youngest social media. Twitter is oversaturated with that joke at this point. I have some theories or ideas behind why this may be the case. And of course, as the official podcast old, it almost feels like a factoid from another age. In 2002, we are on the cusp of a movie information revolution, or maybe already in one. The emergence of the DVD in the late 90s really changed the game in terms of media storage. In the days of VHS, you could usually fit a movie on a VHS, VHS tape with some small extras, maybe some trailers for upcoming films. But when you bought a movie on VHS, unless it specifically came with the second VHS for bonus features, which was not common at all, we didn't get a treasure trove of searchable information on movies. We also didn't have the internet much. I got it when I was 12 years old in 1996. And anything that was over the two, two and a half hour runtime, like Titanic and Braveheart, that would come as two VHS tapes. And VHS tapes are 19 by 10 by 2.5 centimeters, so they are not physically small. The birth of DVD was a micro-revolution in media storage. A massive leap in actual memory, starting at 4.7 gigabytes with single-layer, single-sided DVDs, and upwards of 17 gigabytes for double-layer, double-sided. And that's not even talking about Blu-ray, which is a standard format now and holds infinitely more. Well, infinitely is the wrong word. It does not hold <laughs> infinitely more, but it holds a lot more. It wasn't just revolutionary in terms of storage, though, but also because of format, making it extremely fungible. PS2, uh, the PlayStation 2, remains the best-selling game console of all time because it was the first to market that played DVDs, making it the first true multimedia system. Watch movies, play CDs, and yes, play Metal Gear Solid on this one magical machine, all at a price cheaper than many standalone DVD players. With the expanded memory, every movie came with a load of special features and DVD commentaries where you can hear actors, directors, craftsmen talk over a film and clue you into the magic and idiosyncrasies of production. Uh, I did watch a fair amount of commentaries way back when, when it was still a new thing, though I do regret not keeping up with this trend as I've only really watched uh, commentaries for The Simpsons and Game of Thrones in the past few years. So whether with friends or online forums, we'd rush to consume extras and then share the bits we learned. Vigo breaking his toe was certainly a big one to be passed around before the quote-unquote modern internet took its form. By the mid-aughts, most of these tidbits would be posted online, usually on some IMDB thread or something similar. And now these sorts of tidbits are often told to us in press releases or promotional material or compiled at sites like IGN or Vanity Fair in various listicles. So all that is to say, there was a time when we didn't know every detail about every film, and it was special when you had one to share. So this is really interesting to me because I, uh, and this is probably my, uh, a product of me being like very much part of the digital native generation and like not just the digital native generation, but like the social media generation. Um, I hadn't thought about the size of the the sort of uh, like uh, data transfer or like the, the the size of like the the DVDs, the discs, however you were you were you know sending around this information as something that would necessarily factor into what sort of information you can actually put on uh, on on uh, put out into the world. And it, it, it's interesting because I'm a little bit mind blown 
uh, because it seems so commonplace to me. And but now it also has me sort of thinking about like this problem of like the lack of limitation and like theoretically all the information in the world is out there on the internet. Um, whether it's like well archived and sustainably archived is a different question, but like all the information in the world is out there now. Um, and because all the information in the world is out there, there's simultaneously this like lack of interest in uh, research, I guess, like genuine research, um, and also sort of lack of like excitement in the hunt of research in, in the hunt, like when you are researching. Um, so you get this kind of thing where like, I don't want to bemoan like the stupid shit that everybody bitches about, like misinformation or whatever, but like these kind of bits of information that are treated as a meme now, um, are, like nobody kind of had to go through and hunt for them in an interesting way. Nobody had to sit through, uh, you know, the two, three hour long appendices for each of the movies uh, to find that bit of information. It just gets thrown up on TikTok and then, you know, uh, re-TikToked, re, I don't know, re-videoed, re re-blogged or whatever on TikTok a million and one times or retweeted a million and one times. And so people aren't really like going out and like hunting for that information. So like while it's like good, I guess, that there's like this pervasiveness of information um, and and ease of access in some ways to it. There's also like, I think this kind of interesting and worthwhile question of like what kinds of information become the the sort of mimetic information and, and like, why is it that these are the things that we latch onto, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. There's an entire Metal Gear Solid game about it, which I am <laughs> not going to bore you with, but it is all about memes and not memes as in how we think of internet memes, like I don't know, grumpy cat, but rather memes as actual cultural information that is passed down from generation to generation, um, forwarded by, you know, all time fuckwad Richard Dawkins. <laughs> but I think he was onto something with the idea of memes. Another thing I want to point out here, speaking of Air, uh, Vigo's broken toe, is I want to talk about the term art through adversity, which is a term I don't love because often that adversity is like bad workplace conditions that could have been avoided, you know, either like poorly paid labor or non-unionized labor or just unsafe physical conditions on set. But where it does have value or a good version of it is here, you know, the actor suffers a minor injury and not really a result of anyone's negligence or recklessness, but it does enhance the final product in that we got a pretty cool Vigo scream out of it. Um, I think maybe the more popular or the most popular example of this is George Lucas shooting A New Hope and dealing with the deserts and storms of Tunisia for the Tatooine setting. Um, I just, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but sand is coarse and rough and irritating and gets everywhere. And it's definitely irritating when it comes to film production. Sorry, I had to sweep that in. I, I read that. I'm like, did I really put this in the outline? And I'm like... It was probably a good idea at the time, and I'm just gonna just gonna go with Fucking it. You, you heard me it. hesitate there before I got into. Um, but yeah, that's why it's like you know people might throw around the term art through adversity, and a lot of times I don't agree with what they're classifying as just adversity. Um, but I think in this case, this is where a minor inconvenience or injury actually enhance the final product or wasn't deleterious to it and not deleterious to the production as well. Yeah. So, so this is kind of one of these things that like, and probably on some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, like you can hear me struggling with it a lot, but like, like I think about this a lot in the context of like our kind of current cinema landscape um, and this question of like limitation in art. Um, and I like don't have like a, I don't have like a good thesis on this yet. I haven't like fully fleshed it out to like what I think is the absolute correct take on it. Um, 
But I think there's this problem where there are kind of no limits anymore in filmmaking um, because there's so much capital invested in it because Disney has so much money. Uh, it's pretty much only Disney because Disney has so much money. Like theoretically, everything is possible. Um, and because theoretically everything is possible and what isn't possible could be faked by throwing more and more expensive computers at it, um, you don't get that level of creativity that is engendered by limitation. Um, and, and, and so like, you know, you rightly talk about George Lucas having to get crafty, uh, while filming in uh, actually Tatooine, uh, the, the actual village of Tatooine and Tunis, uh, on the Libyan border. Um, because there is that obvious limitation of the environment and, and he knows he can't just go back to, uh, uh, like a, a studio and, uh, use, uh, like a really good rendering program to kind of fix the, the grittiness of it. He has to work around it and has to, by virtue of having to work around it actually comes out with a much better and more interesting, uh, outcome than if that limitation hadn't been there, which is what we see in the prequels where the sort of limitations that had existed for the original trilogy that ended up making it look look and feel and be so brilliant weren't there um everything could theoretically be done with a bit of um like uh you know computer graphics or like imagery rendering um or could just kind of be bought out uh of the way um you could just kind of pay for these problems to go away instead of having to think through it um, and the prequels i think it's probably not controversial to say are not an excellent uh, series of movies in the way that the original trilogy um are um and you know you also see this sort of problem with marvel where like because marvel uh, has by virtue of being a part of the Disney corporation has so much money to throw at all of its problems. You don't see creative and innovative filmmaking anymore. You see like fairly, you know, technically competent, I guess, filmmaking sometimes, um, that, that really kind of checks the box of like what a film should be, which is like, there are characters on the screen and, and their characters are delivering lines, uh, and, uh, moving their faces and they are costumed and they have hair and makeup and they're occasionally lit. Uh, and there's a microphone and, and that's the film. Um, and, and there's no other limitations because anything that could be a problem is, uh, paid to go away as a problem or they just throw a whole bunch of computers at it. Um, and so you don't actually get this, like, interest, uh, this sort of human interest element to filmmaking, there's not this feeling that like these choices that were made were really purposeful choices and a response to like a, a very serious problem. It's just, these things are done because they are done this way. And by God, an algorithm could have fucking handled it. Um, and I think that to me is kind of the crux of why this Vigo bust in his toe thing is so interesting to people because it shows it's this like last kind of gasp of insight into the world when problems still existed in cinema. Yeah. Um, it was actually something I was thinking about when I was watching the last samurai yesterday. Um, there is some like, you know, computer effects usually for like larger landscapes shots of like ancient Japan or at least, um, 1800s Japan, which are kind of hard to recreate now. But then like most of like the battles and action sequence, all of that is practical sets done in a field with hundreds of horses. And I'm like, they just would not make a movie like this anymore. Yeah. There would be like four horses on set. Everything else would be CGI or like kind of just smushed into the background. So it could just, you know, kind of give some ambiance, but uh, we just don't make it. And I like that you mentioned the prequels because uh, the first thing that jumps out to me is the Star Wars special editions. Mm. Um, the first one, uh, the the ones that came out in 1997, uh, which I owned on VHS, <laughs> which you just heard about. Um, and before each of the movies, they had George Lucas talking about like kind of the changes he was making to the originals to oh, um, kind of 
lead into the prequels. And the big two that stand out to me are Jabba in A New Hope and the fully realized Wampa in uh, Empire Strikes Back, um, the original, original version of these movies. And I realize that some of our younger folks may have never even seen <laughs> um, some of the pre-special edition versions. But like Jabba wasn't in uh, the Tatooine part of A New Hope at all. Um, and then the Wampa was only just kind of a head puppet mm. in the original Empire Strikes Back cut. And then they went back and added the full-sized man in a suit or whatever it is. And you just hear Lucas talking about it. It's like, some people would say that it's more artistic to talk about these things and not show them. But I'm working on the <laughs> prequels right now. And I really need to make sure I can do stuff like this. Um, but it is, you know, a fair point that, like, now that you can basically do anything and make it come to life without... Um, you know, having to do the work of either building sets or jimmying cameras into very specific places, there is something that's lost with it. Um, but I don't want to, I, I want to give one light of hope here. Um, I've been rewatching and watching as it goes Better Call Saul, and I've just started a Breaking Bad rewatch. And um, the showrunners of that show, uh, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold, like specifically give themselves challenges of like, how can we make these shots interesting? How can we have a camera follow a little packet of meth as it goes down a gutter and goes into some <laughs> druggies hands? Like, and they're just trying to come up with impossible, impossible shots, um, all done practically. Like we're going to put a camera on a seesaw or something or on a like a merry-go-round and see what kind of visuals we can get. Like there is a way to still be interesting visually, but I feel like all that imagination has also been sapped because if a computer can do it, wh why bother? Oh it seems to be God. the ethos. That is literally it. You, like I, oh, I, I can't believe I'm gonna have to do this. I'm also such a like so such a negative Nancy. But um, yesterday with the Vanity Fair article that came out about the four new garbage mm -hmm. Disney Plus Star Wars shows, um, Kathleen Kennedy and I. I want to say here, I do not usually approve of all of the sort of dunking on Kathleen Kennedy because I don't think she's half as much of the problem uh, as people like to make her out to be. However, she had this batshit um, line about how the problem with Solo is that uh, is that they uh, didn't have the right actor. They like they everybody wanted Harrison Ford, and realistically, they should have just done the sort of CGI uh, face putting Harrison Ford's face on some fucking uh, you know double stand-ins uh, body. Um, and I hated the movie Solo, and I think it was sort of the the harbinger of everything that was about to go wrong with the Disney films. Um, and I have almost nothing good to say about it but fuck that noise like Alden Ehrenreich did as good of a job as he possibly could have done with a garbage script garbage production schedule um, and it sounds like almost no serious institutional support from uh from from Disney uh in making that film like it's not his fault and the 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 solution is not to just get rid of actors as a as a thing and have some like ridiculous uncanny valley deep fake do all of your acting for you which is obviously there's there's a sort of wider reason that all of these studios are interested in doing that which is that deep thinking an actor is much cheaper than paying an actual one um but i it is it is such like a sick and kind of deeply depraved mindset that like seeing these uncanny valley awful soulless luke skywalker rehashes or han solo rehashes would somehow be better and more engaging in a film uh, than an actual fucking actor uh, and heaven forbid uh, an iota of like human connection in art <laughs> Yeah, God, I, I hate like, OK, you have an actor and you're going to like de-age him for like a quick flashback or whatever. Like, OK, I can live with that. But this wholesale like face swapping, especially with like dead people yep. or people who are 
just unable to like perform the role as they want. Like this was never a thing. <laughs> like, you know, I've, you know, before all this stuff, like people would be recast, you know, an actor might die unexpectedly and they just put someone new in. Um, the feeling that it all has to be this like perfect continuity. And I mean, I don't want to blame George Lucas, but he did stick Anakin Skywalker at the end of Return <laughs> of the Jedi, um, you know, in those special. Um, luckily, the special editions I own on VHS had the original Anakin because uh, Hayden Christensen was not a thing yet. Um, but, you know, it's like there's no like I understand that this is a movie I'm watching. So if an actor was replaced for any number of reasons or like this is a younger version of the character, like these aren't things that need to be like high fidelity to me like these are things i'm willing to concede to the art form because i just want them to tell the best story possible and the fact that we're going to get deep fakes of all these star wars characters just bums me out it like it substantially lessens my interest in star wars going forward if we're not going to see like new actors rise up and like take the place that once was held by luke skywalker and mark hamill or whatever you want to say yeah um just a massive bummer to me yeah um, I would recommend for anybody who hasn't seen the the versions of uh, Star Wars that weren't hacked to death by George Lucas and later whatever minor uh, editions they did for Disney Plus, uh, Harmy's Despecialized Edition. That's H A R M Y apostrophe S. Uh, it's a legal gray area, um, but you can find it online and, and watch it. And they basically tried to get as true to accurate to the uh, 1977, 1980, and 1983 original cinema runs of the films. Um, and for a long time, those were the only versions. I watched and uh they are they are worth your time they're definitely fun a little clunky in places but like good uh, and an interesting sort of counter to the garbage that is online <laughs> yeah and the benefit of being an independent podcast with no advertisers is we can tell you just <laughs> pirate all you want or whatever legal means or illegal means you want to use to obtain content i fucking hate calling it that <laughs> um we are okay with we we endorse the doing of crimes go rob a uh, and not just <laughs> oh if you have a blockbuster to rob that's even more <laughs> remarkable hey hey i've spoken a lot about playstation 2s and metal gear solid so why not just go into this <laughs> my favorite game of all time is metal gear solid 3 which re released exclusively on the playstation 2 in 2004 um, if you're more interested in that i have eight full episodes on metal gear solid 3 over at podcast on frontiers the first two Metal Gear Solid games in this stealth action series were set in urban environments, but Metal Gear Solid 3 took the story of Snake into the jungle and played as kind of a survival and tracking game. It also, just as an aside, has some of the best enemy bosses of all time in any game ever. One of the most cited boss battles of those is against The End, ostensibly what's supposed to be a sniper battle against you, who is Naked Snake, the character who would become Big Boss. Sorry, I can't help myself expositioning all over the place. But instead of fighting him sniper to sniper, you can instead track him, locate his footprints, find blades of grass he bent as he walked around, and any trails he left in the mud, Also, you can sneak up behind him and hold him up and get the best rewards in the game. It's a thrilling way to play this battle. Anyways, all that is to say, I get major big boss vibes from Aragorn's tracking sequence. He sees a spot where Pippin almost gets trampled, and from there he begins piecing the story together based on what remains. And just a reminder to the audience, my original reading of this entire scene was these are Aragorn's skills as a ranger that's doing his tracking, and less so the fact that he has that elvish connection. 
Yeah, um, in the in Latro, my favorite game of all time, the Lord of the Rings Online, everybody join. Uh, there's a, a class, the Hunter class, which is the class that I play. Um, and you've got wayfaring skills, which is just fast travel. And you do that exact thing where you're like on the ground, like nose to the ground. And it cracks me up every single time I see it. Um, it's uh, I, like, obviously, they've done it inspired by the films, but it just makes me feel very like, Haha, look, they're doing the thing. The Leo <laughs> meme, pointing Leo meme. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're both able to talk about our favorite video games here. <laughs> now we are cutting back and forth between the Hobbit's escape and Aragorn picking up the clues. He finds where Pippin cut his bonds, and there's a turn in Aragorn's voice. He is now realizing he isn't tracking the Hobbit's doom, but rather their escape. He hastens now and notices that aside from the Hobbit footprints, they were followed by Grishnok. The orc would grab a hold of the belt, which explains its presence in the pile. I really love the sequences of Merry and Pippin scrambling underneath and around horses. Um, the height difference really works beautifully to sell how the hobbits could easily be missed amidst the carnage of battle. I also like the subtlety of making all the footprints and footfalls apparent in the grass. The film isn't screaming them at you, but you can see Grishnok's boot marks and all that. Eventually, Aragorn tracks the hobbits away from the battle and into Fangorn, ominously to... Uh, made ominous to us by Gimli's line, what madness drove them in there. But because I am extremely bad at hearing, I first heard this as what madness drove me there, <laughs> and I didn't read it as Gimli had been to Fangorn, but just some like weird Shakespearean phrasing <laughs> as if Gimli hypothetically went mad in the forest of Fangorn. Either way, it communicated to me, this place is dangerous. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I, I would love a version of the Lord of the Rings films where Gimli's just out there uh, in, you know, doing all of his lines in iambic pentameter, and it maybe makes sense and maybe doesn't, but people just go with it. Um, yeah, uh, no, that's banging. Uh, one of the things that, um, and I've worked so hard to restrain myself. I think I've made it like three whole episodes without mentioning Dante. So I've, uh, I've earned this, I think. Um, <laughs> so we're like halfway through the movies here, half-ish way through the movies here. Um, and in, uh, Dante's Inferno, uh, halfway through, uh, his life uh, when he is 33 uh, he finds himself in a dark and twisted wood um, and of course uh, halfway through the series we also find ourselves in a dark and twisted wood uh, and this is and maybe not the most slam dunk parallel that I could have ever done in my life but this is the sort of nonsense that I'm going to start uh, <laughs> dropping in uh, when I try to restrain myself on the Dante parallels I, I think you got a leeway I for no reason compared Aragorn to Big Boss from Metal Gear Solid <laughs> We're just giving a lot of uh, runway here on the analogies in this episode. <laughs> the camera does a wipe transition from Aragorn and company the next morning to Merry and Pippin fleeing into Fangorn the previous night. They take a moment to catch their breath, and we get a zoom out on the forest surrounding them. It's very different from any of the woods we had seen so far, from the Shire through Lothlorien. The edges of frame are cluttered with twisted roots and branches, making it feel as if the forest is closing in on them. Grishnok chases them and forces them up trees. Pippin makes it, but Mary is pulled down, and I'll always love Mary kicking Grishnok in the face and the resultant blood that flows. We get a bit of slapstick after Pippin yells for Mary. He double takes and makes Jim help her face when he realizes <laughs> the tree is looking back at him. We even get a direct point of view shot into Pippin's face as he's shocked and starts falling backwards, though the tree catches him. 
We then see Mary, who is about to get a maggot hole, turn his attention from the immediate danger to the giant tree coming alive behind him. Grishnok takes the br- takes the briefest of notice before he's pancaked into the forest floor. Treebeard picks up the other hobbit, and we do our introductions. I just really love Merry and Pippin's divergent reactions to this walking, talking tree. Pippin saying, don't speak to it, don't encourage it, as if that milk can be squirted back into the udder at this uh, point. It's perfectly foolish and humorous, as I'd expect from this too. <laughs> First off, horrifying turn of phrase there, I am... <laughs> losing my mind at that um but also uh it's really worth watching the behind the scenes for this particular scene because the amount of times it takes billy boyd to get that line delivery right is so funny and i now can't watch the scene without just like hearing the pain in his voice as they try to film it um and i think it really just adds a new layer to to the whole thing (laughs) mary on the other hand is perfectly canny and able to wrap his head around this Again, this is appropriate to the knowledge he imparted earlier and his experience living next to the old forest. Treebeard has never heard of a hobbit and assume it's just orc lies. After airing some of his grievances about orcs, he drops them at the feet of the White Wizard. The White Wizard is, of course, Gandalf, though the film wants us to assume it's Saruman for just a bit longer. We'll talk about that a little more in depth when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli encounter him in a couple episodes. You may also be thinking we are going to you may also be wondering why we are going extremely light on the treebeard and end content. Sadly, it was very important that I talk to you about DVD storage and Metal Gear Solid, so we had to pump this one to a later episode. I think we'll actually talk about it when the company meet Gandalf properly. Um I just want to say cont end. Wait, what? <laughs> content end end. <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I get that. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely leaving that in the podcast so you can hang on that tree. Awesome. You'll also get to hear us talk about the old forest in our Fellowship of the Ring book episode that's dropping next week, which will be a nice companion piece to the end talk. We've intermingled uh, the cinematography and score section with our analysis section, so this will be a little light, but I do want to call out that there's a lot of beautiful landscape shots as we're cutting back and forth from the original pursuit of the three hunters uh, to the Urukai before they make camp for the night. And then I also want to talk about the blue tint overlay to the Fangorn camp scene. Uh, Fangorn camp scene, sorry. It accentuates some of the orc skins, especially the what about them, they're fresh guy, which we identified as Snaga. And I also can't stress enough how fucking visible and clear everything is despite it being a fireless, moonless night beside the forest. Yep. I mean, it turns out that sometimes uh, lighting techniques that have been used for hundreds-ish of years in uh, theater on in stage productions might actually be used because they're effective. Uh, who could have guessed? And the color scheme changes flashing back from night to day during the Aragorn tracking sequence, which I just love to highlight because we are constantly cutting from two different color palettes, but the transitions aren't jarring. Everything seems to be of a piece. Lastly, I do also want to call out some of the orc designs specifically. Grishnok and Snaga come most to mind. Grishnok has this great facial construction. 
sunken eyes, emaciated cheeks, but a wide, heavy lower jaw. But what really makes his look is the big fur lining to his cloak, ordained with giant teeth, presumably from wargs or other creatures I dare not speak of. <laughs> and he has the vibe for me of like a kind of mid-level imperial bureaucrat. Like he's got, he's he's not like hench, like he's not strong. So he's not like the kind of Nazi Ubermenschen kind of thing you got going with the Urix. He, he definitely to me seems like the kind of guy who could be like behind the counter at like you know, uh, Mordor's imperial bureaucracy kind of stamping on, like, uh, cutting welfare for disabled kids or whatever. Yeah, and that's uh, in contrast to Snaga, who has kind of this blue scaliness to him. He's almost a little bit slimy. He has a little extra mucus as he opens and closes oh. his mouth. And I and his uh, eyes t- bug out a little more as opposed to being sunk in. So we talked about how the orcs are kind of samey in Fellowship of the Ring, mostly because they aren't a huge focus, especially visually, and they're lit in the darkness of Moria. But now in Two Towers, and especially when we get to Return of the King, we are seeing a little more um, range in terms of how the orcs are visually depicted in terms of costuming and makeup. Hopping over to our Token Token book section, I want to first focus in on Eomer's introduction to Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. Um, the thing that really sticks out to me is that Eomer names Aragorn Wingfoot, which <laughs> I just really like as a nickname. <laughs> I like that he, like, within five minutes of uh, meeting uh, Aragorn, Eomer's like, damn, this bitch fast, and renames him based on that. Like, fair enough. Uh, it's, it's very, like, kindergarten besties kind of energy. <laughs> um, so... Oh, Lordy, this bit. Um, so from here on out in the books, um, we have three uh, capital K, capital M, key men, uh, at least uh, as far as the sort of Gondor men plot is concerned. You've got Aragorn and you've got Aemir and you've got Faramir. Um, and like, though I am to say it, um, there are going to be quite a few like incredibly important parallels between Aomer and Faramir that unfortunately have to be pointed out. Um, so Aomer and Faramir alike um, are commanded not to let wanderers pass through their lands. This is something that's really up front and center in, in Aomer's uh, uh, introduction to, to Aragorn um, or to the Three Hunters' introduction to the story generally in the book. Um, and Aomer and Faramir alike um, ultimately decide to contravene their orders to let the wanderers pass anyways. Um, and, you know, they do this both out of this sort of general sense of obligation towards the greater good. Um, but the differences in how they handle these scenes, I think, are really crucial and also important for us for understanding like Aragorn as a character more generally. So you get um, Aomer in the book who opens his sort of introduction to the narrative by asking the three hunters if they are elvish folk. Um, when Faramir's men come upon uh, Sam and Frodo and Athelion, one of his men asks, are they elves? But in this case, it's actually Faramir who says no, which leads to this kind of funny scene where Sam's like, don't call us ugly, you ugly bitch. Uh, and Faramir is like, yeah, fair enough. Um, and that parallel between asking the question about elvish folk and knowing definitively that they are not elvish folk isn't in there for no reason. It's actually meant to signal that Faramir is the wiser, sort of more learned and more worldly figure, and Aomer is less wise, less learned, and much quicker to speech and to action. 
And then there's also this sort of, trying to think of like the nice way to say this so I don't sound like I'm just ragging on AMR for the sake of ragging whatever he's belligerent he's super truculent um he is like incredibly abrasive right from the off and stays pretty abrasive all the way through like even when him and Gimli are kind of having this lads banter about like who they'd rather shag Arwen or Gladriel they're still like definitely nearer to the point of blows um Faramir by contrast starts off as abrasive but it's meant to come off as sort of less like a sort of personal belligerence and more as a general distrust. Um, and so when Faramir later sends his men away and talks to Sam and Frodo in silence, um, he actually shows himself up as like kind of a gentle character, gentle soul. But Amr's kind of a dick the whole way through. And even after his men are sent away, he does sort of lighten up, but he's still got that like heavy, aggressive sort of berserker warrior feel just bubbling under the surface of his character. Yeah. <clears throat> to be honest, I put this in the notes before I realized you also had that bit about Eomer sending his men away, but it really stands out to me. Like Faramir knew like initially when they captured Sam and Frodo, like there has to be some kind of public performance to all this. Yeah. Um, and then once that is done, he's able to take Sam and Frodo aside and he is just so gentle and is like, yeah, a lot of that was for show. Um, I had to do something in front of my men. Uh, whereas Eomer, it's not just how he is, but you know, like his men are popping off and like making jokes about them. Uh, I think it's the name uh, that they give the kid in the movie. Um, who's like, yeah, Aothane. Um, he's the one who's just like kind of popping off and making <laughs> jokes. And I don't think Aomer necessarily looks terrible, but like if you compare the two, you can see that Faramir has a little more grace in terms of how he greets these new people and brings them into whatever kind of community he's working with at the moment. Oh my god, no, absolutely. And there's also this moment where like like Faramir, like prideful though he is, does actually apologize to Brodo. He is like, I'm sorry we had to do this like this, like it took me a minute to kind of catch up to what was going on. And Aomer doesn't have an apology in the same way. Um, and I also think the kind of interesting thing here is that like, um, bo like both men are kind of honest and both men kind of make their commentaries on honesty and, and the importance of honesty in these sort of like initial interactions. Um, but Aomer's whole uh, kind of scene is this kind of belligerently honest um, kind of series of interactions where like you can tell he's not lying but there's kind of no artfulness to what he's doing um, whereas Faramir's a I don't want to say he's a liar like he's definitely not a liar and he has the line like I would not snare and snare even an orc with a lie um, but he he plays a kind of fast and loose with the truth in some ways which is why he's able to do that kind of hilarious show trial thing that he does at the start and then kind of tighten up uh the the sort of intended audience of his conversation with sam and frodo whereas aomer has this kind of tightening up of the like groups involved in in these conversations but it's not because he's being crafty about it and it's not because he's like thinking through the full implications it's literally just because he's a dude in charge and can tell people to fuck off when he wants them to like them to fuck off <laughs> um so yeah, so 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 these kind of parallels are important for a lot of reasons, but like the key one is this. This is the moment at which Aragorn starts to amass his key men. Eomer, though nobody yet knows it, will become the king of Aragorn's most important political and military ally. The Rohirrim are effectively Gondor's dirty workers. They are the cultural other employed to do the military garbage work, and they are the quote unquote less refined version of Gondor. So when Aragorn wants to go out and do wage his wars of imperial conquest, he has to have Aomer around to give himself the moral clearance to do it. I think there's a really important 
sort of historical parallel here to uh, Scottish uh, people and the, the sort of Scottish contribution to the British Empire in that this, it was the Scots and certainly the Scots aristocracy and bourgeoisie who effectively devised, structured and managed the British managed the British Empire so that the English aristocracy wouldn't have to get its hands dirty in quite the same way. So there's that. But then Faramir, as we've talked about before, is certainly not a man of war or isn't a man of war in the same way Aramir is. He's a man of knowledge, of lore, of culture, and of history. And so while Aragorn isn't unlearned in these things, Faramir is definitely more of an ideologue, almost a dilettante in some ways. He's someone who has both the time and the energy to think about, to, to think deeply about the things that come across his desk and the world around him. So Faramir is setting himself up to be the brains of Aragorn's operation, and Aramir is setting himself up to be the brawn. And then there's this really important bit. Aomer chats very briefly about Boromir, and I want to read you this bit that he says. Great harm is this death to Minas Tirith, and to us all. That was a worthy man. All spoke his praise. He came seldom to the mark, for he was ever in the wars on the east borders, but I have seen him. More like to the swift sons of Eorl than to the grave men of Gondor he seemed to me, and likely to prove a great captain of his people when his time came." This there's so much here. <laughs> like I, this is I, yes, I'm so excited about this because there's so much here. Um, I do want to point out that uh, Amr says the Boromir was ever in the wars on the east borders, not the south borders or the north borders. This is fun and interesting for those of us who like to argue about Gondor's military structure because uh, it might actually be accurate to say uh, that Faramir was not full time captain of the Rangers, and he may have only been there, as he actually does say to Denethor later, because Boromir wasn't there to be an Athelian. Um, you know, maybe Boromir did spend a lot of his time in Athelion, uh, and certainly more than we otherwise think. Uh, anyways, it's it's a mostly relevant point, but it is a fun thought exercise. Um, so this that quote that that I read there, um, it's important because it's one of the first external reactions we get to Boromir's death, um, and it shows that. Boromir was kind of an international man of intrigue. <laughs> like Aragorn may be known to the elves and the Brelanders, but Boromir kind of knows his way around the cosmopolitan south. And that's big. That's a huge loss for both of these kingdoms. And then we get a really interesting appraisal of Boromir. Um, and one actually Manu that you flagged before, which is that Boromir and the Rohirrim are tight. Here, we're shown this like, in a really positive way. Amr says it's to his credit that he is alike, that Boromir is alike to the middlemen. And later in Athelion, Faramir will agree with that assessment, but then goes on to say that it's really fucked up and bad that his brother is so close to the Rohirrim. And I flag this not just because it's relevant to our conversation up top about noble savagery, but because it shows that there's a depth and nuance to the internal politics of Middle-earth that often goes ignored. There are significant disagreements within this politic, and while we don't have a West Wing or Game of Thrones-style nitty-gritty tinkering approach to politics, they are still very much there and very relevant. And I hope, probably like our listeners, Emily, you are the person who has made me see much of the politics that I didn't even realize were there, <laughs> despite time. watching these movies a million times. <laughs> Granted, they're not in the movies, but even when I read the books, I was... Head empty about a lot of it, so I appreciate it. <clears throat> so like we said earlier, we're going to skip a lot of the Treebeard talk and save it for an upcoming episode, but I'm going to end today with a quote about his eyes, which we do you know, see very much as Billy Boyd looks deeply into them as he's just about to fall out of a tree. <laughs> One felt as if there was an enormous well behind them, 
filled up with ages of memory and long, slow, steady thinking. But their surface was sparkling with the present, like sun shimmering on the outer leaves of a vast tree or on the ripples of a very deep lake. I don't know, but it felt as if something that grew in the ground, asleep, you might say, or just feeling itself as something between root tip and leaf tip, between deep earth and sky had suddenly waked up and was considering you with the same slow care that it had given to its own inside affair for endless years. Mm. So I lifted this out of the text. Emily, is this something that Pippin wrote down after the war? Um, yeah, so, was- so it's interesting because the kind of um, like the the provenance, the kind of history of who has the text that would later become uh, the Lord of the Rings as translated, quote unquote translated by Tolkien is interesting. So theoretically, Frodo does some of the writing for this, um, but it later goes to both Sam and the Red Book of the West March, which is under Pippin's care. Um, this seems to me like the sort of thing that stylistically is probably probably a Pippin edition annotation. Um, I think based on like the, the sort of closeness of the experience that Frodo certainly never had. Um, I would guess that you are right. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. I just think that the, I don't know, but it felt like just that phrasing in the middle of the paragraph made it seem like it was something that was added after and not told in the moment. Mm. Um, but that'll be something we'll discuss in full because the tree beer chapter is a whole fucking thing <laughs> and it is, yeah, it, it is long and a lot of other things too, <laughs> but mainly long. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybro, mypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on. Which Manuclear Bomb? Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me on Twitter at JR Tweeting, where I will be hanging with the Entwaves. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. go bless you leaving that one and that one's been sitting in there for like two hours now oh god that feels good (laughs) invigorated for the last half a new day